Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It began long ago. Two young boys in an American town, riding their bikes to school and little league practice. But over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories. Not any stories, mind you, but tales where things would go horribly wrong. Usually perpetrated by stupid people doing stupid things. While they grew into adulthood, their senses of humor stayed in the fifth grade. As they both gravitated to careers in broadcasting and they moved to separate coasts, their friendship grew even stronger in their obsession for the best stories of others' mishaps. Cover the young one's ears, pour yourself a strong beverage, and buckle up. The Box of Oddities is about to present Schneebly and Toth, the shallow end of the gene pool. I don't know if we made this clear last time. Lindsay is actually in Los Angeles right now. And I am in Orlando along with with Kat. So we're we're representing both sides of the country pretty much at this point. It's a bi-coastal podcast. Yes. And that's how progressive and forward thinking we are. And yet with modern technology, space age technology, I I can look at you right across the screen the way I did when we worked in radio together without having to get up at 4 a.m. Which is a lonely, dark place. We've (laughs) we have discussed this. So how's your how's your dog uh, Sally? How's Sally doing? Sally's doing very well. You know, we we adopted Sally. It'll be ten years ago in uh, in the fall. Uh, the shelter in Burbank. So as such, we know nothing about her. They guessed at her age, and they said we think she's uh, corgi, a corgi mix. And if you've if you've seen photos, you think, yeah, okay, I see the corgi. And then we started googling other breeds and uh, saw that. Corgi Basenji mm-hmm. mix. Yeah. So Nancy surprises me with a DNA test for Sally that she has she has taken it upon herself to get. We've done this. Well, it's a fascinating thing. And so it came back and they said she is 50% pit bull <laughs> and 40% border collie <laughs> with a little bit of Chihuahua and Pomeranian mixed in. Uh, you know, that's really interesting because uh, Howard, our dog, looks like a Corgi Basenji mix. And that's almost exactly the uh, the blueprint we got back. So just for grins, I said, hey, Siri, mm-hmm. how do you say Pitbull in French? In French, Pitbull is Pitbull. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I couldn't have done that on my own. <laughs> Pitbull. Thank it's Thank like, you, Siri, for the translation. Pitbull. It, Pitbull. 
So now I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to ask for my money back. <laughs> well, I wouldn't hesitate. I would do that immediately. 50% pit bull. So, so Howard is <laughs> yeah. really came back with, with a pit and... What uh, was it, Kat? He is Dachshund, Chihuahua, pit bull, poodle, chow chow, German shepherd. Yeah, he's all messed up. Man, that's a mix. That's a soup. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> God is. God bless him. Okay, so do you want to go first again, Linz, or would you like me to go first this time? I went first last time. All right. I don't want to be all hoggy with the go first thing. Don't don't worry about that. All right. Back in, I think, it, well, I know for a fact it was 2002 because I wrote it down on this piece of paper I'm reading from. <laughs> um, a 36-year-old carpenter from British Columbia. His name was William Dean Sullivan. This man had a dream, Linz. He had a dream. Okay. You're in Los Angeles. How difficult is it to break into the world of uh, being a stuntman or person? I know, believe it or not, a couple of people who are who are stunt actors. Really? And and I've never asked them, is it difficult? Selfish. <laughs> I have said, would you like to hear more about me? <laughs> but I've never said, so tell me, how difficult is it to become a stunt person? I would think that so many people move to Hollywood to become actors, producers, directors, writers, camera musician, whatever, and almost all of them have, are hard to get into. So I'm going to guess that it's it's difficult to become a stunt person. Well, William Dean Sullivan, what, that was his dream. His dream was to become a stunt man. And it's, I imagine, a pretty tough business to break into. Like you said, it's got to be highly competitive. Plus, there's that element of danger. And I guess it's particularly difficult to break into it uh, when you're like William Dean Sullivan, who had little or no experience at all in being a stunt person. He just, that was his dream. That's what he wanted to be. Good on him. So he was racking his brain for ideas on how to get the attention of, of filmmakers, of the industry leaders who might be in need of an inexperienced stuntman. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> He considered lots of different options. He thought, well, maybe I'll go to Hollywood and, uh, you know, meet people and audition and do that. But then he thought, that's, that's a lot of work. He came up with a, <laughs> with a brilliant plan. He noticed that in September every year in Vancouver, a uh, Vancouver, Vancouver, Vancouver's a whole different city. <laughs> Vancouver, Mellencamp. Mm -hmm. The Vancouver Film Festival takes place and it's a pretty big deal. Have you ever gone to that, Linz? What? I've never been to uh, the Vancouver Film Festival. I've been to Vancouver, but never the film festival. Producers and directors and actors and writers and production companies all descend on Vancouver for this event. It's a, it's a pretty big deal. It's kind of a who's who of filmmaking. So William thought rather than go to Hollywood and try to break in there, he would take advantage of the fact that Hollywood was really uh, literally coming to him. The idea struck him that if he were to perform some kind of a stunt, an incredible, spectacular display of his ability in front of some of the industry's biggest film producers, when they come to Vancouver, they would hire him immediately. Now, this is a genius idea. Yeah, well, he's thinking out of the box. and I Out of the box, and I admire his, his gumption, as they used to say. So he's thinking what to do. What to do. And he, I guess, came up with several different ideas. He considered them. He even got as far as the planning stage of a couple of them, only to discard them as either too dangerous or too complicated or just impossible to do. Then one day he was reading about the traditions of the Vancouver Film Festival, and uh, many of the industry's leading filmmakers at the beginning of the festival take a short cruise 
leaving Vancouver and sailing through the uh, first narrows of the inlet that connects the city of Vancouver to North Vancouver. The area is referred to as Lionsgate. Uh, it's the mouth of, of Vancouver or Vancouver Harbor, more or less. And it's spanned by Lionsgate Bridge. So our hero recognizes that the cruise ship always went underneath Lionsgate Bridge. And, and this, gave, this gave him an idea. Uh-oh. He thought to himself, why not bungee off the Lion Gates Bridge and land on the cruise ship? Ta-da! Excellent idea. While the cruise ship is passing beneath, he thought what he would do is he would he would bungee, he would time this, right? And he would jump off the bridge with a bungee cord as the ship is coming. And of course the bungee cord's gonna pull and snap him back and he's gonna go up and down a little bit. But then when it settled enough, he had it timed so that when that happened, the cruise ship was going directly under him and he would gently repel to the uh the deck of the ship, in his mind like James Bond. <laughs> And did he Okay, I can just let you let you go on. Yeah. I'm just picturing you're you're there. Now what do you say? Hello, I'm not from around here and I have no stunt experience. <laughs> Please hire me. Cast me in your film. He he could see it all in his head lens. He had it all figured out. Sure he did. He'd gracefully swan dive off the bridge, reaching the bottom of the tether, spring back up and then gently repel the rest of the way down onto the deck to the thunderous applause of the movie industry's visiting titans. The startled onlookers. This obviously would be a major stunt in any major motion picture, but the thing is, in major motion pictures, stuntmen usually work with stunt coordinators, and these are the people that do the research. These are the ones yeah. who figure out the logistics, the launch angles, if you will, the mathematics. Yeah, they're up there with the uh, the whiteboard and the yeah. dry erase markers and doing formulas and want to make sure that your reentry angle is correct. What the pros do? Yeah, they minimize the potential for injury. Basically, is what it is. But William was more of a do-it-yourself kind of stunt man. <laughs> Get in there and just make it happen. Yeah, yeah. He just kind of went with it. Uh, not that he didn't take the time to strategize. He did. In fact, he planned this for two years. Wow. He studied the deck layout of the cruise ship that was used. He checked the height of the tides at certain times, and he factored that in. Just to make, for him. to make sure the tether wasn't too long. He checked other boat schedules to make sure that there was nothing coming that would be in the way that would uh, cause the ship to divert from its uh, planned route. Good thinking. And that would affect its timing, of course. Because timing is critical. After all, this is a James Bond moment for him. And, and he wants, yeah. you know, I can see him in his white tux landing on the deck with a martini glass in his hand. I'm sorry, sure. was he wearing a tux? No, he was not. He was thinking of it as, a, he was modeling this after stunts from James Bond films. So, and he did not wear a tux, although I think that would have been really... Yeah, a white dinner jacket is, uh, just makes everything look better. Yeah. <laughs> the timing of this, of course, crucial. The producers and the movie people would stand there in awe at what he had just accomplished. This is what he had in his head. And he, he did do his homework. Everything checked out. So on the 28th of September in the year 2003, William put his plan into action. The cruise ship had just left the pier. It was late in the afternoon. Most of the passengers were just kind of milling about on the deck. It was cocktail hour, after all. A jazz band was quietly playing in the corner and People were sipping their cocktails and enjoying the late summer sun. 
They didn't see William Dean Sullivan standing on the lip of the Lion's Gate Bridge, attached to a bungee cord in a crouched position waiting for his cue. As the ship reached the predetermined and in his mind perfectly calculated point in the inlet, William knew that his moment had arrived. This was his destiny. Yeah, baby. He took a deep breath and he leapt off the bridge. Go, William. Now, as I said, he, he spent two years in the planning process for this stunt. He checked the tides, he memorized the deck layout, he timed the ship's approach to the bridge. The one thing he didn't factor in was the speed of the ship. It was, okay. <laughs> it was a small miscalculation, but it had sure. a huge impact. Just like William Dean Sullivan did. Oh, no. Instead of gracefully bungeeing off the bridge and softly landing on the deck to the smattering of applause coming from the attendees at the (laughs) cocktail party. Golf claps. (laughs) Yep. And this is according to the Vancouver police. He, quote, bounced off the ship's tennis court, ricocheted into the volleyball net, hit the deck railing, and was left dangling midair as the ship slowly passed by. I have never... (laughs) <laughs> I've never heard the word ricochet used in reference to a human body. <laughs> that pesky gravity can really mess up a man's plans. Yeah, and maybe that's why he didn't wear the dinner jacket. I mean, whites, they stain so easily. A woman named Kate Hill, who lives in Vancouver, witnessed the entire incident from the bridge. Uh, she was on the east side of the bridge taking photos of the approaching cruise ship and, and waving to her cousin who actually was on board the ship. Wow. How cool is that? But then she looks over to her left and she spots something suspicious. Quote, I noticed these three guys on the west side, she said. And all of a sudden, they had a coat or some sort of padding that they were throwing over the railing. And they were tying a rope to one of them who had a climbing harness on. And he climbed over the side and he dropped out of sight just as the cruise ship was going under the bridge. Now, she actually managed to snap some action photos of this as it was happening. Holy cow. She got stills of this happening. There's actually video of it, too, online. Okay, I will definitely share this on your social media. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In an interview printed in the Badger Herald, she went on to say, quote, There were shrieks of horror from down below. The people saw him coming, you know, toward the ship. I guess he missed. She said he went off the edge of the bridge as he did. She went around to the end of the bridge so so she could get a better look at what was going on. And she could just see him dangling at the end of the rope. Um, It wasn't long before the entire bridge was shut down by firefighters and paramedics and police. She told the police that the man looked like a climber. He had an athletic-looking build. He was wearing, you were asking about this, he was wearing bright scarlet pants and a white T-shirt. No Hmm. white dinner jacket. Okay, dressed for summer. Scarlet pants. Witnesses on the ship described seeing a man leap from the bridge, plummet toward the ship. The bungee cord started to pull and create resistance, but he still bounced off the tennis court, (laughs) ricocheted into the volleyball net, and careened off the, the railing and then just dangled beside the ship like a pinata as the ship slowly passed by. After that, Sullivan slowly repelled himself down to the water where he was rescued by a passing water taxi. Uh, They, in turn, turned him over to law enforcement where he was arrested. (laughs) Fortunately for Sullivan, he only sustained minor head injuries. 
after bouncing off the tennis court, ricocheting off the volleyball net, and careening off the railing. He was, however, charged with uh, criminal mischief, and he didn't get the gig. Just, you know. So that's, yeah. that's unfortunate. You would think that after all of that, they would like uh, at least his uh, tenacity. Right. They would hire him for craft services or something. <laughs> Kind producer would feel bad for him and say, well, you know, I, yeah. Yeah. We'll you get- can, here's, here's a little, here's a bit, bit stunt part for you, just for your troubles. I admire your attitude and your, your work. And I, by the way, I find those scarlet pants very fetching. <laughs> <laughs> My source material, the Badger Herald, Wikipedia, thebuildering.net, and, you know, that was it. That was pretty much it, so... I don't know. I think I might change my name to Scarlet Pants as an air name. What do you think? <laughs> I think that's perfect. The Shallow End with Scarlet <laughs> and Jethro. <laughs> You're in the shallow end of the gene pool. We used to be called Casket Town, but we've grown so big we're changing our name to Casket City. Visit our showroom today. Find more caskets under one roof than anywhere else in the country. After all, this is Florida. Whether you're looking for something made of flimsy cardboard, a simple pine box, or a casket fit for a king, you'll find it here. And remember, caskets make great gifts for that person who has almost everything. Our huge inventory is produced here in our own factories. There's no middleman, so our savings are passed on to you. Get that joke? And even if you're not in the market just yet, come take our Casket City factory tour and see for yourself just what goes into building the last home you'll ever need. Casket City. Think of us as God's waiting room off Interstate 4 in Orlando. Casket City. Not affiliated with Casket Village or Casket Hamlet of Miami. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at ConstantPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. 
Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Wait in. The water's fine. We think it's water. You're in the shallow end of the gene pool. I'm thinking about, because we live on the 12th floor, I'm going to fashion a harness and bungee off the 12th floor of Mm. our apartment. We're still talking about that then. Oh, yeah. Fun. Uh, Lindsay, do you have a story? (laughs) I do have a story, Kat. Thank you for asking. Yes, you're welcome. (laughs) It was 1998, and a gentleman named Louis Dethy of southern Belgium was hissed. And I mean really pissed off. How pissed off was he, Lindsay? Well, let's go back in time and find out exactly what happened that made him so upset. So as I said, this is 1998, and a few years earlier, his wife had left him and taken with her their, wait for it, 14 kids. 14 14 kids. Ouch. And to make matters worse, he, Lewis, felt that his wife had turned all 14 kids against him. Wow. Okay. Now, yeah, he had been cheating on her, but oh, hey, okay. yeah, yeah, there's really no need to turn the 14 kids against me just because I was, you know, taken a little off the side, as it were. <laughs> so he decides, all right, this is this, this calls for desperate measures. Now, initially, as is the case in most situations like this, things were going well. The Deathies were a happy family. And in fact, to the neighbors in uh, this is a a suburb of Belgium called Charleroi, Mr. Dethy appeared to be a harmless, God-fearing, dare we say taciturn character who spent his uh, retirement puttering about his garage, working on projects. And he'd actually built this home himself. It it was a chalet-style brick and timber home, and he built it in the 60s. And then after it was done, he brought his family and, you know, everything was was hunky-dory. So it's a very conservative area of Belgium, very, very Catholic. And uh, that's why having 14 kids, Uh. 10 girls, 4 boys— Really wasn't much of a surprise back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's. And they even they had a lot of of uh, religious artifacts. They had a, a a crucifix hanging on each wall, even in the kitchen of the home. But some men are prone to stray, and despite Lewis's strong religious beliefs, he ended up committing adultery. Now, did you ever have a crucifix in your kitchen growing up? Uh, we did. Did you? We did. Yeah. We, we had we had one of those copper rooster jello molds. <laughs> I don't know what faith that is. I think that's more Episcopalian. <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and okay. guess. Yeah, okay. Catholic light? Sure, I don't Catholic know. light. Yeah. That's yeah. that's right. It wasn't a copper fish mold. Yeah. That okay. would have been even yeah. That would have been uh, a Episcopalian. Am I right? Oh. Ah, fish jokes. Good night everybody. Thank you for it's coming. The cat show. God bless her. Tip your waiters and waitresses. <laughs> 
So he uh, he ends up committing adultery. His wife catches him in bed, and she leaves, and she takes the uh, takes the kids. Wow. So he's uh, he's absolutely distraught, forlorn, pissed off because in addition to the fourteen kids l- later in life, they end up with thirty seven grandchildren. <laughs> 37 grandchildren. So his bitterness just grew and grew. <laughs> and even his mother ends up taking the side of daughter-in-law. Oh, no. Which, you know, you can understand. You end up screwing around on your wife. and Right. So the, the land that the house was built on, that he built, was actually land owned by his mother, and she turns against him no. and she bequeaths the property on which his house is sitting to one of his daughters, a woman named Jean. Wow. Who's now 49 years old. So this is when Mr. Deathy thinks, okay, all right, it's wartime. He becomes a recluse in the house and no one ever sees him leave. He's he's clearly doing something, but but nobody can figure out what's going on. Is he in his garage puttering? He's he's still puttering. He's puttering in the house, in the garage. Neighbors just see him going in and out of different doors. But uh, he's he's already on to something huge. And you got to remember, this guy is handy with his power tools. Right. That's what I'm thinking is he's coming up with yep. some sort of, he's fashioning yep. weaponry, isn't he? You're on to it, pal. It was booby traps. Ah, ha, ha. He figures if even the the land, the house doesn't belong to him, he'll be damned if somebody's going to be able to try and move in, kick him out, take over the house. So he had been an engineer his whole career, and he starts laying down booby traps throughout this three-story home. They were all over the place. And because he's an engineer, it's not not just Wile E. Coyote stupid, you know? (laughs) They're hidden in walls and in floorboards and in cupboards, in ceilings, even everyday household objects like a a chest of drawers. He has turned into weapons of instant death. (laughs) (laughs) And most of them involve 12-gauge shotguns. Oh, Oh, wow. Yeah. And they're connected to whatever piece of furniture or object by nearly invisible pieces of fishing line or or nylon threads so he's really ingenious about this there's even at at one point he comes up with the idea of a crate of beer that's marked beer but when you open it and remove enough of the bottles that triggers the hidden shotgun no and you go in reaching for spuds and you end up with a chest full of slugs. <laughs> I just came up with that that's beautiful um do people call beer spuds? Isn't that potatoes? We used to call them spuds in uh, in Arizona. No, we, no, I, you know, I take it back. We called them suds. Oh, ah, that's well. that's completely different. <laughs> Can I do that again? Yeah. Yeah. No. So you. <laughs> Good on you. You're right. <laughs> so you end up, you know, reaching for a can of suds, mm-hmm. and you end up with a chest full of slugs. Oh, how was that? There you go. That was very Norm Macdonald, wasn't it? Yeah. Only his would have been funny. So in the in the attic, he's got a trunk full of money 
that's rigged to blow your head off. <laughs> Does television it say money on the side of the trunk? Probably misspelled, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a far side cartoon. Mm-hmm. The television has a shotgun rigged to it. Even the hot water heater. <laughs> has a shotgun connected to it. How many shotguns does this man have? Well, he ended up with 20 booby traps. Oh, my God. So the local police chief, a guy named Gino Van Huffel, said, in the cellar, we found a chest containing money, a length of fishing wire almost invisible to the eye, connected the clasp to a hidden cavity in the wall. Anybody who opened the chest would have had his head blown off from a weapon concealed in that cavity. Wow. So again, kitchen cupboard, boom, down goes Frazier. But the traps are all over the place. Microwave, this one didn't involve a shotgun. He had he had wired the microwave to electrocute the person who turned <laughs> oh it on. God. So you go to warm up your cup of coffee and boom. You get electrocuted. Yeah. But like I said, th- this guy was not stupid. He was highly intelligent. And he realizes that he's got so many of these things hidden that he needs to start taking notes to remind himself of where all these things are. Right. So, for example, the pile of booby-trapped dinner plates <laughs> was revealed by a clue in Cheaper by the Dozen. You remember that film in the 1950s, sure. Walter Lang? Yeah. Of course, yeah. In which a child throws a plate at someone's head. So he scribbles down cheaper by the dozen to remind himself, hey, this thing's got booby-trapped dinner plates. Uh, a scrap of paper containing the words, le vin est tiré, which is French for to pull or shoot. How would Siri pronounce that? Pitbull. <laughs> she, she pronounces everything as pitbull. Pitbull. The French word tirer, to pull or shoot, that led to a trap in the cellar. So after a while, neighbors who, as we said, had been seeing Lewis, you know, going in and out, they realize they haven't seen the guy in a while and they start to get suspicious. So they call the police and the police show up for a welfare check. Now, keep in mind, he had technically hasn't done anything to alert anyone that anything is amiss. They're just aware that they haven't seen Lewis in a long time. So police arrive, they knock, there's no answer. They finally let themselves in. They start wandering around the house. And as you might expect, they find the body of Luis dead from a shotgun blast to the neck. Wow. Did he forget where he had... uh put one of the booby traps and when he opened the drawer for a pen to write down don't open this drawer it's booby trapped yeah that's what they they eventually came to believe because he had died from a gunshot wound to the neck and it was actually an assumption that nearly cost one detective his own life because as he's searching the house he opens one of those booby trapped wooden chests and a shotgun inside explodes when you know goes off and misses misses the cops neck by like inches so the police understandably say screw this (laughs) and they leave they're like no we're done so they call in military mine clearance experts and these guys these military experts are in this house for weeks and weeks and they start unraveling all these clues they find all these scribbled notes and Like I said, they found a total of 20 or evidence of 20 booby traps. They were able to crack 19, but they were never able to find 
the 20th. That's going to really affect the resale value. Now, down here, sir, you'll see a small clause saying that something in this house may kill you, but... <laughs> But look at the view of the garden. Just sign here and this beautiful house is yours. <laughs> so the final note that they found in his handwriting was just beyond confusing. They finally gave up because all these experts, police detectives, couldn't decipher the clue or the trap that it pointed to. The note simply said, quote, the 12 apostles are ready to work on the pebbles, close quote. Huh. What the hell, right? Yeah, that's... They uncovered 19 death traps, among them seemingly harmless but lethal pile of dinner plates, <laughs> that television, the exploding crate of beer, the microwave oven. One of the explosive experts said, we've never come across anything like it before. It was all fiendishly clever. The house was booby-trapped from top to bottom. We had to take everything apart. A gentleman named Luke Bodard, the head of military and demining team, says... We looked everywhere. He referred to the 20th device in his notes. We can only conclude it wasn't yet in place. Wow. So the police believe that Mr. Deathy was killed when he tinkered with one of those devices. It was in a dining room sideboard triggered by moving a soup bowl. Oh, and that either failed or forgot to disarm it. And that's what happened. So that device was actually number 18 went off. It was the shotgun spraying lead shot into his face, severing oh. the main arteries, supplying blood to the head and neck. Wow. Wow. The, the expert says the position of the body leaves us in no doubt that he made a false move and the trap went off. So after all this, the daughter, Jean, the 49-year-old who inherited the, the property, the home, said members of his family were convinced that they were all intended as victims. He hated us, Gene said. Wow. Father was a strange and cold man, but he was ingenious, and he put his ingenuity to bad use. He wanted to kill us all. Instead, he was caught by one of his own traps. Well, I was going to say, wouldn't you worry that one of your 1,400 children would stop by? <laughs> and ah, But apparently that was the goal. That was the goal. I'm just going to grab a beer, Dad. I'll be right in. <laughs> sure, take your time. Sources for this uh, for this bizarre tale include Reddit ranker, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the London Telegraph. You know, it's it's funny because when a parent passes away, and the property is bequeathed, usually the children or the surviving heirs, if you will, will fight over who gets to keep it. In this case, they were like, "You take Dad's house. You take I, it. I don't want it. You take the beer cooler." You get a beer cooler, and you get a beer cooler. <laughs> what year was that? That uh, that was 1998. He was a complicated guy. Look alive if you go to Belgium and start touring old homes. <laughs> <laughs> See any cryptic notes? Yeah. Then yeah. you want to get to Ridlin. The 12 apostles are ready to, what did I say? The 12 apostles are ready to play pebbles. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Maybe it was a garden Booby trap. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he had like a... Some sort of Jesus sculpture out in the backyard. Yeah, like, mm. like garden gnomes, only they were the disciples. Yeah. If I saw those 12 apostle garden gnomes, yeah. you know the one I'd stay away from? Which one? Judas. Don't touch Judas. <laughs> Something bad's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. <laughs> 
Or is it's, that one too obvious? It's, it might be too obvious. He probably made it Peter. To Peter, because, yeah, it was his favorite. false sense of security. Right, yeah. He was the favorite, always Nothing the favorite. Nothing could happen if I touch this garden gnome. He's shaped like Peter. <laughs> Kablooey. Said no one ever. Oh. Well, I feel sated. How about you? Oh, yes. I feel whatever it was that you just said. Yes. That sated, that post-podcast rush. <laughs> where I want, I want a cigarette and a deep breath. A round of green sleeves on your harmonica. <laughs> it's an inside joke. It doesn't matter. Um, anyway, yeah, the shallow end. Uh, we're going to be dropping episodes every week. And you can find out more about the podcast by going to shallowendpodcast.com. And uh, we really appreciate it if you take the time to uh, subscribe and, you know, do all that stuff. You know, you know what it is. If you wanted to leave a glowing review, that we wouldn't object. Just say something nice. Yeah. Even if it's not true. Maybe, maybe, five, maybe a five-star review. That would be nice, too. Yeah, but if you, if you don't feel like leaving a nice review, why don't you uh, help yourself to a couple of these beers here? <laughs> <laughs> They're in this little beer cooler over mm. here. Lift up the lid. <laughs> it's marked beer for your convenience. <laughs> So we'll see you next time. Make good choices. Remember, your life may depend on it. So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toff. We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast, give these boys a five-star rating, and think of something nice to say, even if you have to make something up. And visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. All content copyright 2022. Misuse of this podcast may result in serious injury or even death. Follow all label directions. This offer void in Fort Kent, Maine and Tucson, Arizona. And parts of Orlando. Don't ask. Just trust us. Okay, gotta go. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is... Well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.